of historical context here. Um, children of Israel in the Old Testament, we're talking way B.C. All right, this is 600-ish B.C. Um, fell under the rule of several kings, and it's, as it says in the book of uh, Judges and Chronicles, that the people did what was right in their own eyes, which was largely evil. And so we saw a great digression in the children of Israel. Um, they fell into greater and greater levels of sin and prophets, like uh, Jeremiah, who's one of the, the major prophets in the Old Testament, prophesied from the word of the Lord that says, if you don't change your ways, you will be punished. And he specifically says, you'll not only be punished, but you'll be punished greatly. You will, you, your, your walls will fall, your temple will be burned, and you'll be cast out. You'll be forced to live under the rule of another country, that you'll be an outcast, you'll be an exile. And that happened because the people didn't change. So we saw the, uh, the great dominant nation of Babylon come into uh, the nation of Israel and destroy it and conquer it. So in 609 B.C., uh, there was a kind of the first invasion of Babylon, and uh, there were three different waves where they came, and eventually they laid siege to Jerusalem, and they held it. People were forced to eat terrible things because they couldn't eat anything else. Uh, and there were three waves of exiles that were taken out of Israel to Babylon. And in Babylon is where you hear the story of Daniel and Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in front of Nebuchadnezzar, who was a Babylonian king, who said, you're going to worship me or be thrown into the fiery furnace. Remember all those from when you were children? Okay, so that, those are things that happened in the Babylonian captivity. Uh, the Babylonians were eventually conquered by a superior power, the Persians. All right, so they were in uh, captivity for 70 years, as prophesied by Jeremiah. Um, and the Persians took power. Uh, and Cyrus, the chief king Persian, was much more generous. This is, this is some historical recap here, but it makes sense in the context here. He's much more generous, and he said, you know what? You can worship your God. And not, not only that, but I'm going to let you go back to your land. He said, I think I can rule better if you're happier. You're, I'm still your king. And so he had a governor, uh, Zerubbabel, which we saw in the text. And he said, I'm going to send you back, and you can go plant your fields again, build your houses, build your walls, and even build your temple. Not only that, but I'm going to give you money to do it. So he wrote a decree. He said, I'm allowing this, and here's the funds. All right, so they went back, and they started building. And a couple years later, they were kind of getting uh, stones um, figuratively thrown at them by the people who had remained, uh, some people who weren't Jews, or some people who had been displaced from their country and replaced there during the Babylonian conquest. And the, the children of Israel started rebuilding the temple, but they, they quit because they just got discouraged. It was... It was tough. It was harder than they thought it would be, even though they had permission, even though they had funds. And so they quit. So in 537, uh, things just stopped, even though the foundation was built. Uh, you fast forward to 520, which is the book of Haggai. We see, uh, we talked about how we know this for sure. It's all listed here in the context of Scripture. I won't go through it all again. And Haggai delivers a word from the Lord in 520, which is the second year of King Darius, uh, the Persian king. And we see in Ezekiel chapter 6, excuse me, Ezra chapter 6, that three years later, um, or four years, depending on what calendar you're looking at, the temple is completed. All right, so it worked. But what we, ha what we have here is 
They're freed, they're financed, uh, they're sent, they have established government, they start the project here, they get discouraged by just kind of their own uh, weak will, really, and they, and they sit in this time, and we read the first prophecy. And so we hear the word of the Lord, who says, is it not time to, to do what I've called you to do? Uh, you're building your houses, and they're looking quite nice, but you have, you have postponed the, really the work of the Lord. And so what happens here in this first prophecy, we, three, we see three parts in this first prophecy. We see um, the children of Israel really get called out, that the, the problem is identified. Look in verse 2, Haggai chapter 1, verse 2, 2, 3, and 4. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. It's not time yet, they said. Um, verse 3, then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time, question, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses or your finished houses or your elaborate houses while this house lies in ruins? So what we see here is the word of the Lord is calling out three different problems. One, there's a physical problem, like they are physically not doing the work. They, they, they are not using their hands, using their minds, using their brute, using their brawn to physically build the house. It is sitting there in ruins. So there's a physical problem. There's an intellectual problem. They have justified their actions by saying it's not yet time. And it's interesting to take note of that because the children of Israel haven't shifted to the point of saying, no, we don't believe in you, God, anymore. They haven't shifted to the point of saying, you know what, why don't we offer sacrifices to false gods? They're, they're acknowledging God, but they're just saying, you know what, it's just not time yet. Later, maybe when our enemies quit being jerks and they quit throwing stones at us, or later when we get a little bit more support, or later when, we, when this becomes a little bit easier, or the weather turns, or more people are on board, or, or more exiles return, we have a larger, there, there's this intellectual problem where they've convinced themselves that said, you know what, even though we've been given freedom, we've been given redemption, we've been given permission by the king of the land, we've been given financing, you know what, even though all that has happened, we've determined, you know what, it's not yet time to do that, so we're just going to postpone the work of the Lord. We're going to postpone the building of the temple. So what are we going to do in the meantime? Well, we're going to build, I'm going to build my house, because at least I can do that. I'm going to build my home, which leads into the third problem. There's a physical problem in that they're not building. There's an intellectual problem in that they've justified their actions. And then there's a third heart problem where they have prioritized their homes over the home of their God. They have heavily invested themselves in themselves. So that's the first thing. We see a call out and an identification of the problem. The second thing that we see in verses 5 and 6 is that God is identifying the consequences. All right, so in verse 5, he says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have had you." You never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so, but puts them in a bag with holes. Now, what we begin to see here is a literary feature in the text that's called an inclusio, and it's, 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 it's like a bookmark, or a bookend, rather. And so verses 5 and 6 make a statement. 
All right, they say, God is saying in this prophecy, uh, you're eating, but you're not filling up. You're drinking, but you're still thirsty. You're making money and you're putting it in your wallet, but there's holes in it. And then he really kind of restates that um, at the end of this text, which is verses 9, 10, and 11. So jump down to 9, 10, and 11. He says, you look for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld, withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. So there's an identification of the sin you have done these things physically, intellectually, and in your heart. And then there's an identification of the consequences. And then the third piece is the command. Verses 7 and 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. Go up to, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it. And that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the hills and bring the wood and build the house. That I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. You see the book ends there? So the consequences, you're eating but you're not filling, you're drinking but you're not, you're not, uh, your thirst is not being quenched. And then the command and then a restatement of the consequences. So to, kind of, to summarize the prophecy... The children of Israel have neglected the house of the Lord while building their own. The Lord has withheld his mercy and his blessing. And the command is build my house that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified. Now, seeing this timeline, hearing the summary of this prophecy, I think there are several questions that need to be answered, both in the historical context, but what, what does it have to do with us today? So the, I think it's fair to ask the question, um, why is the building of the temple important? I mean, I think we know, depending on if you went to church as a little child or how much you've studied, um, but why, why is the building of, of the temple that important? What we see throughout the course of the Old Testament is that God specifically, emphatically describes and communicates the place where he is. Okay? We, we talked a little bit about it last, last week. That God has said, this, this is where I function, and this is how you have continued right relationship with me. We saw it in the garden. We saw it in the tabernacle. We saw it in Solomon's temple. And we saw that this, this, Solomon's temple was destroyed, and there needs to be a rebuilding of this temple. That God has said, this is where I work. That this is where you worship. My command to you, this is where you worship. <clears throat> this is also where you confess your sins. Right, in the Old Testament here, under the, under the Mosaic law, your confession of sin had a practice with it. It wasn't just something you did in your heart. Now, there was definitely a mental, emotional, intellectual level to confession, but it, it, was, it was partnered with the sacrificial system. That was not just a, if you have opportunity or if you have means, it was required. That the shedding of blood was required for the forgiveness of sins. And it happened in the temple, not in your backyard. All right, so if you wanted to worship, it was connected with the temple. If you wanted your sins forgiven, 
It was connected with the temple. It is where you presented your offerings. And I'm not just talking about sacrifices, but it's where you give. It's where you give your money. It's where you give the thing, that the, the 10% that is clearly stated out in the Old Testament. That if you're going to give to God as commanded, you're not just blindly giving even to missionaries at that point or like good causes. You give it to the temple and to God's work. That's how the whole priesthood, the tribe of Aaron, existed, was from the giving of the people as commanded by the Lord. It is where the books of the law were kept and taught. We're we're speaking of an illiterate nation here. So if you wanted to hear from God, God spoke through his law, through the priests. Where were the priests? At the temple. It is where you heard from God via the priesthood, because at that point in the Old Testament, the priests were the mediators between God and man. You didn't talk directly to God. A priest offered a sacrifice on your behalf so that you could be made right with God. So if you remove the temple from that whole scenario, it's just difficult. Now we see in other stories that you could still worship God because you have stories of Daniel praying to God in his window. You have stories of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saying, no, we will not worship you, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, But it was just difficult. It was hard, and it wasn't the way it was meant to be long term. And so what the people of Israel now have is they have the means, they have the time, they have the resources, and they have all of these things, and suddenly it's kind of like, I almost think of it like, you know, you watch movies, or maybe you hear stories of your parents in like the early days of their marriage, and they were poor, and they didn't have anything, but they loved each other, and they didn't, you know, my mom and dad talk about how like they got down to the last can of soup, you know, assuming they weren't lying to me, but I know that they had some, I mean, they were married real young, and they, you know, they didn't make a lot of money, and that one year they didn't have a Christmas tree, and so they, they pinned up Christmas lights on the wall in the shape of a Christmas tree, you know, and they did what they had to do, and like, you know, if you're, you know, you don't have money for dates, but you can go on walks, you know, and pick flowers off the side of the road, and it's like, you know, sweet, and it's tender, and, you know, I look at that in the context of like the Babylonian exile, like you're, you're taken out of Israel, you're taken out of Jerusalem. You no longer have a temple, and you're in this foreign place, but, but, but you make do. Uh, if, 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 if God is your God, then you make, you make do. You, know, you don't have a temple, but you're going to pray in your window like Daniel did. You know? But on the contrary, they've been removed from that. So in, this, in a silly example of a marriage, like let's say you're in a marriage and you had all those sweet times as a poor couple, but suddenly you make all this money, and you retire early and have all this time, and you're like, you know what, I think I'm going to go on a cruise with my buddies, uh, and you leave, and you leave your, your wife at home. It, I mean, something like that just seems ludicrous and, like, uh, detrimental to your relationship and, and really wrong. And, like, why would you do that? Now that you have the time, now that you have the resources, things, you, you were making it work, but now you have all this stuff, and, and, and then you, you just, you leave it? It's what the children of Israel did. We see in the book of Revelation... Uh, over and over, there's, there's, there's patterns of, of, of turning away from God. In the book of Revelation, we see a verbiage of you have left your first love, you know, that, that you have turned from the one that you, you once loved. And, and, the, and, and the thing is, it was, they were in, in captivity for 70 years, but it's only been a little while. <laughs> so they needed the word of the Lord. So why was the temple important? It's where you were made right with God. For all of these reasons. So what does 
the next question is, what does the rebuilding of the temple of the Lord mean? Like, what does it mean physically, and what does it mean spiritually? Rebuilding the temple of the Lord, or the house of the Lord, is acknowledging God's superiority, God's preeminence, God's primacy. It, it, it is showing where your priorities actually lie. Because we see that the temple is the means by which you can get right with God when you follow his commands. We see that the, the, the temple is the means by which you grow in your walk with your God. We see that the temple is the means by which you even obey. And if, if, you, if you remove the element of getting right with God, if you remove the element of spiritual growth, if you remove the element of obedience, what you have is pagan idolatry, is what that is. Because what's the opposite of getting right with God? It's conflict with God. What's the opposite of spiritual growth? It's, it's a running from God, not just being stagnant. What's the opposite of obeying? It's disobedience. Um, none of which is the pursuit of God. So Haggai, in 520 BC, August the 29th specifically, based on the context here, the temple work had been abandoned for about 15 years. And very specifically, the word of the Lord was saying to the people of Israel, the remnant that was there, <clears throat> your priorities are off. Specifically, not broadly, your priorities are off. You have replaced them with self-advancement and justifying of a, of a postponed project. Your sin has been identified. You have neglected your God, and you have made yourself your God. Your priorities are shown in your actions. And then there's an emphatic, do this. Consider your ways. Go to the hills and build my house. And there's an identification of the consequences that are already experienced. That for whatever reason, I'm going to come back to that last point. Why the physical building of the physical consequences? God had caused a physical drought. They were physically hungry. Their crops were physically not producing. The old covenant that we see in the Mosaic law certainly had a, a personal aspect of, of faith. We see that in the life of Abraham. Um, but the old covenant was directed to God's chosen people, which was a, a people group, the, the Jews, the Israelites. He says, if my people will obey me, they will be my people and I will be their God. That God's blessing largely rested on the nation based on their national obedience or disobedience. Their, the, the heart issue was still there, but we see it over and over. The exile out of Jerusalem to Babylon happened to the nation. The temple was something that was there for the nation. The drought that the children of Israel were experiencing in the time of Haggai happened to the nation. In the Old Testament, the military success of the nation was due to the national obedience to God. That there was a requirement of other people within the nation, meaning the priests, that they were all involved in your relationship with God, that they were tied, the people were tied to the priesthood, and the priesthood were tied to the people that the Holy Spirit, pre-Christ, 
did not dwell eternally, personally in people. That the Holy Spirit was present corporately. We see in the book of Psalms, King David, who says, take not your Holy Spirit from me, meaning the Holy Spirit could be taken from him, uh, which is different than, than now with the new covenant. So how does the new covenant change from that corporate people group model, if you will, to the personal aspect? After Christ came, the people of God became known as those who put their faith and trust in Christ, not simply a nationality or people group. That national identity and national government, which we see throughout the Old Testament, is removed in Ephesians 2, it says the dividing wall of hostility has been removed because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in Ephesians, when it says the dividing wall of hostility, it's saying that there was a chosen people group identified as the, the Jews, and then there was an unchosen group that we call the Gentiles, and there's hostility between the two. And at the coming and the work of Jesus Christ, he has broken down that dividing wall. The, the, the curtain has been ripped open, and by the work of Jesus Christ, you have now access to him, and that we are the children of God corporately, and that there's a personal trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And so no longer are actual, literal animal sacrifices required corporately via the priests. That priests are no longer required because Jesus Christ is our high priest. That the law is no longer in scrolls in the temple, but is written on your hearts. We're going to flip around in the Old Testament here. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. So where in the old covenant, the temple was the place where you would worship and where you would present your sacrifices and where you would give your, 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 your money or your resource offerings, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to, prevent, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is spiritual worship. Do not be conformed. Do not let your mind, your heart, your soul, your body be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That you don't give sacrifices, that we don't have to go get a goat and offer a sacrifice, but instead, what you do have to sacrifice is you, your body you are giving yourself up for the cause of Christ. That you are dying to self. And that is a spiritual act of worship. That you no longer have this, this cow uh, or a, um, a, a bird or a goat or a sheep. Like that is done away with. But instead what is required that the blood offering has been spilt. It was spilt by Jesus. But there is still something expected of you. Your life. That is not something you give up in a temple. But it's something you do in your heart. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. Hebrews chapter 10, 11 to 14.
Hebrews 10, 11 is uh, speaking of beginning with speaking of the old, old covenant requiring priests. And it said, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sacrificed, or those who are being sanctified. That we worship with our bodies, we worship with our mind, our heart, and our soul. We present our offerings to God. That we have a, a great high priest, which is Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. First John 1 John 1.7. New covenant here. It says, If we walk in the light as he, Jesus, is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we have not sinned, we make him to be a liar, and his word is not in us. That the sacrifice of Christ on the cross has already done its work. We're still required to confess our sins, but it doesn't happen in a temple through a priest anymore. You don't have to flip back to Jeremiah, but in Jeremiah we see a prophecy of the coming new covenant where it says behold the days are, c- are coming declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel verse 33 says I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people once again I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people this is in contrast to the old law so in the physical temple, that's where you would go to hear the law. In the physical temple, that's where you would go to make uh, yourself right before God through the priest. In the physical temple is where you would go to be taught the word of the law because it was in the scrolls, in the ancient languages, and we were an illiterate people group back then. So you heard the law. And what we see in the new covenant, as we referenced in 1 Corinthians 3 earlier, that the Holy Spirit dwells within you. So in the old covenant... The commands of the law were written, and and the people of Israel had to be continually told and taught. And the example that I think comes to mind is, if imagine if you had uh, uh, zero nerves in your body, that you couldn't feel anything. All right, so every night you had to go in and follow this checklist to make sure that you're not wounded or you're not bleeding or you don't have problems or there's not a blister that needs to be addressed that you didn't pull a muscle and you have to have other people looking at your back and checking your hair and look are you bleeding are there bruises is there anything anything wrong or as best as you can can you tell if there's anything wrong internally check 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 you're okay all right you can move on to the next day all right but the introduction of the new covenant is like the holy spirit has given us this nervous system that says you can now tell for yourself, like, oh, there's something wrong here. 
It's the Holy Spirit telling me that I need to check this issue out and address it. Does that make sense? That, that's kind of the, the differences that I see here. That there was a, that there was a demand and there was a requirement that you were in this structure for spiritual purity. And now we're not removed from the body by any means, which we'll, we'll address in a few minutes. But the fact that the Holy Spirit lives and indwells you means that the Holy Spirit will always be active. All right? So you can't run away from the Holy Spirit. He, he will be with you. And if you sin, there's going to be a prick or a poke, and you're going to see it, you're going to feel it, that you're not left to your own devices all the time, that the Holy Spirit indwells you. So when it says in Jeremiah, I will put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts, it's speaking of the coming, indwelling, eternal Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. Now we could stick our hands up to that. We could say, no, I still am not going to listen. But what, what happens is that wound doesn't go away, but it festers and gets worse. We see that, which is the nature of sin. So the building of the spiritual temple is the giving of ourselves to God, is confessing our sins by the blood of Jesus Christ, acknowledging that we need um, Jesus to make it through, that we are being taught by the Holy Spirit and the other means of grace that he has given to us, that we are able to hear from God directly. How does this relate to us? Um, 520 BC was a long, long time ago. It's 2016 now. And to the Jews, this first prophecy was in three parts. The first part said, to the Jews, you have neglected the physical house of God while building your own. To us, the question needs to be asked, have I neglected God's spiritual means of grace while building myself spiritually? That the things that, that, that God was telling the children of Israel in 520 B.C. were not earth-shattering, mind-blowing, brand-new information, wow, we never saw it that way before, kind of prophecy. It was, there's not a lot of detail other than you've neglected this, you've built houses for yourself, go build my house. And in the context of the new covenant, where, the, where we are a temple of the Holy Spirit, I think that it can be similarly simple in that the means by which God works are pretty clear in Scripture. That, that we're called to be a part of the body of Christ, the local body of Christ here. Not just attending, but intricately involved. That we need to give ourselves physically to the work of the kingdom. That you need to be serving. Somewhere, somehow. In, 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 in God's kingdom. I'm not saying that you do that occupationally. I don't think that's in scripture that you have to leave your job so that you can do it full time. But that part of, part of your priority 
Because nowhere in this old, nowhere in the Old Testament did, 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 did God say, hey, neglect yourself and just sit out in the elements while you're doing my work. No, he didn't say that. He said, well, you need to prioritize my work. And then I will bless. And they didn't prioritize God's work. And so God physically withheld physical blessing from them. And so if we are not spiritually taking care of God's temple, which is your own pursuit of Christ, then God can and will withhold spiritual blessings from you. The spiritual drought, it goes hand in hand. Like it was hand in hand physically in the Old Testament, it's hand in hand spiritually in the New Testament. That you cannot thrive in your walk with Jesus Christ and neglect him at the same time. (laughs) You can't. And I would argue that you cannot thrive in your walk with Christ and have a so-so commitment to the local body. I would argue that you cannot thrive in your walk with Jesus Christ and have a mediocre time in the Word. I would argue that you cannot thrive in your relationship with Jesus Christ and and have a a mealtime prayer life. And I would argue that you cannot thrive in your spiritual life if you're void of of, of service that that is kingdom-minded at some level. That it requires our physical actions, our intellectual processes and, and chewing and thinking about things of eternal nature beyond Sunday morning teaching, and it involves our heart. I would argue that you cannot thrive spiritually if you're not giving your money. It's, it's, it's I mean, it's hard to say that, but we see commands in Scripture that we, that we prioritize God and our heart, our, our mind, our, our soul, our body, our resources, and if you look and, 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 and you're not tithing or you're not giving, you're not attending, you're not reading or you're not praying or you're not serving, um, there's going to be a spiritual drought that God is going to say, he's not going to say, surprise, I was withholding this from you the whole time because you weren't, no. He's saying that there, there are actual consequences, and I think it's just so interesting in Haggai that God very clearly pointed out, hey, you, you, you were sowing those fields, and you know what? You were doing it technically right. Textbook. But I gave you 20% of a crop instead of 100 this year. I'm withholding myself from you. That's what he's saying here. It's not what he's saying ish. It's what he's saying. You know? It says that you have put a bucket in the well... That's a 50-gallon bucket, and you pull it up, and it's 20 gallons. You know, you don't see the holes in your pockets, but I've put them there. So it sure looks like you got a lot of money, but when you go back for it, it is not there. It is a drought, physically. And if, if we're not giving, if we're not feeding on the Word, if we're not working on our prayer life, if we're not working for the kingdom, if we're not working on our own hearts then we are neglecting the temple of God. We are neglecting the temple of God. And there will be consequences for that. Now, this is not a health and wealth talk because we've taken the physical out of it. Um, But the things that are promised when we pursue God, the spiritual security rest in eternal things, peace that passes understanding that the world does not obtain or possess, um, 
joy in the midst of tragedy, trial, and physical discomfort. And if God so blesses and so desires to, on top of those things, by his pure 100% grace and unmerited favor, bless you with something physical, it is 100% because God is mercy, not because of anything that you've done. Because it's not deserved. <laughs> so children of Israel, you've neglected my house. Church today, are you neglecting his house? The, the, God had withheld physical blessings. Their physical work had been hard and discouraging. And in the same way, God can withhold from us spiritual blessing if our work is not pleasing to God. Um, I almost see this as um, asthma, if you will, um, which is a breathing disorder. Um, and if our, our spiritual temples are neglected, or maybe more accurately postponed. Because I think if, if, if you're here today and you're spending time in the word, I think that more of our, more of my tendencies fall into something that sounds much nicer than postponing rather than neglecting. That postponing my walk or my health or my giving or my serving can happen, you know, that can happen later when I make a little bit more money. I agree that I should not, and you know, that's not an issue, but later, later when I have a little bit more freedom on my schedule, I'll get up earlier and spend some time in the Word. Later when uh, I don't have as many evening activities. Later when I have uh, a wife and a house and I can really be settled and know where I'm going to be for a while, I'll plug in deeper to the body. Later when I uh, make a little bit more money and I'm not so tight financially, I can, I can really give. Later when I have more vacation, I'll give that vacation and I'll serve more. And postponing of the things that we're called to do now is really the, the same sin as just straight up neglecting. And if we do those things, we're restricting our ability to breathe spiritually. And if God were to call us to run, and we take <coughs> off running and we start wheezing because we're not prepared. We haven't been taking care of the temple. There was a command on the Jewish people Build my house. Consider your ways. Go to the hills. Get some wood and come down here and start building. Very clear. Build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified. So that God can say, well done, good and faithful servant. Then when we are right with God, uh, nothing can go, can go wrong in the spiritual sense. You know, the Apostle Paul looked at life in such a way where he said, if I'm persecuted, then glory be to God because I get the, wit, the, the opportunity to suffer for him. And what greater glory is that? If I'm killed, the glory be to God that I'm, I'm, I'm in his presence. If I'm left alone, glory to God because I can continue doing what he's called me to do. That when we have that perspective and his temple was, 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 was well-maintained, I don't know about you, but 
I, I don't want trial and tribulation. I don't want frustration. I want things to go well in my family. I want my kids to be healthy. I want my, my marriage to be awesome. I want to succeed in my job. I want my finances to be secure. I want to get along with my, get along with my extended family, and I want to have good relationships with my peers and my coworkers and my neighbors. I, I, I want all those things. But if God were to withdraw any one of those things, the health or the life of a child or a family member, or if I were to lose my job, or if I were to suffer in new ways physically, is it possible to face that and still say with a smile, God is good today and yesterday when I had more? To look at the future and say, I don't know what tomorrow holds. Or maybe you look at the future and say, it is a stormy next couple years. But to say with uplifted heart and spirit and confidence that God is good. And I don't know what that looks like, but I am his and he is mine. And that is enough. That's what it means to have your spiritual temple maintained. And so I think that there's application for each one of us. Uh, broadly but also specifically I know that there have been many times in my life when I really thought I was doing pretty good and then something popped up that was unexpected and really threw me for a loop spiritually and when you're knocked off your horse spiritually um, as a married man it affects my relationship with Lauren it affects my patience with my kids um it affects my quiet time. <laughs> I mean, it's all inter, intermingled. And so that's why we are called to a, continu- a continued pursuit of Jesus Christ. So this is the first prophecy of Haggai. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your word in the Old Testament. And I thank you for the new covenant that we have by the blood of Jesus. Father, that we are under the new covenant. And I thank you that you have entrusted Christ with that who has entrusted it with us for those of us that have call that call you Lord and Father may we look at our our lives and our hearts and our minds our actions our conversations our giving our serving our priorities our time management and ask ourselves the question are we building the temple of God um, and, and please help us with that because we need that And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for being here.